the federal government shouldn't be going, it probably is not best to go around and tell people who is eligible for Medicaid. The states are. But those states are also going to make choices about what they actually want the policy outcome to be, whether that policy outcome is keeping a relatively large or relatively small share of its population on Medicaid. Welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And of course, we are sponsored, as always, by the Government Finance Officers Association and Build America Mutual. I'm Justin Marlowe, and I'm joined, as always, by my intrepid co-host, fiscal policy wonk chicken connoisseur, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Thanks, Justin. And uh, just a, a quick shout out. I'm coming off of a, a wonderful weekend in which a bunch of people from Governing Magazine, like all through the years since 1987 through 2019, got together just outside of Washington, D.C. in sort of like this, uh, I guess, 35 year <laughs> anniversary of the launch of Governing. <laughs> um, it was just a chance for a bunch of us to see each other again uh, and get some get some uh governing swag that was still lying around. I got a little sign for my my journalism wall behind me. Um, but it was just such a reminder of what a great place it was to work and the the quality of, of journalism that came out of that magazine and, and what we all meant to each other. So just a little shout out there to my former governing colleagues and governing family. Oh, it's wonderful to hear. And I second the motion. I mean, one of the <laughs> one of the great thrills of my professional life was uh, getting a call one day saying, would you like to to contribute a column to, to mm. governing from time to time. And that uh, got a sense uh, up close and personal of just uh, of the quality of the work that went on there and the, the, the you know, the, the commitment of the audience, right? You know, at times it felt like there were oh, yeah. s- sort of groupies, right? It was this really strong, deeply engaged uh, set of people who, who read and went to conferences and were, were very involved in everything governing did. So that was a, a great to see that, that uh, the spirit lives on, if nothing else. <laughs> Well, we are uh, talking today about Medicaid, which you know we don't often maybe think of as a, a public finance issue, but in so many ways, it is. If you are running a state budget, if you are thinking about financing uh, public health or health care at the local level, especially say in, in county governments, uh, the state Medicaid programs and the federal state partnership around Medicaid is critically important. We're going to have Richard Oxier from the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center on to tell us more about the, the landscape of Medicaid and, and in particular some important policy changes happening in Medicaid that could have all kinds of trickle-down effects to states and localities. So just to back up uh, for anyone who may be less familiar, of course, Medicaid is the health insurance program, the public health insurance program for the uh, low-income folks and for children through the CHIP program, the Children's Health Insurance Program. And uh, every state has some version of a Medicaid program. Every state's program is a little bit different. And every state's relationship with the federal government is a little bit different. The federal government contributes anywhere from half to sometimes up to 80% of the funding for state Medicaid programs. And the design and structure of those programs is very different. But no matter where you are, every state Medicaid is a very, very important line item in the state budget. In fact, in in several states, it's the largest line item in their state budget. Mm -hmm. On average, about 25%, depending on which state that you're in. Lots of money in fiscal year 21, which is the last year that we have good data. We know that state spent about $728 billion, billion with a B, dollars, 
in their Medicaid programs. That's just the state component, say nothing for the federal government's contributions. Uh, so it's, it's a lot of money and a huge impact on the what we might call the, the sort of mandatory part of state budgets. If you're if you're running a state budget and you're appropriating dollars year in and year out, Medicaid is one of these programs where you're going to have to appropriate a certain amount of money, even if you don't choose to appropriate that money. It depends on the, the way that the program is designed. If you want to scale back spending in your state Medicaid program, you got to change the program, which uh, can be difficult and politically challenging in so many ways. So it's a, it's a real key part, a real focal point in state budgeting, even though we tend to leave it to the health policy folks or the people actually delivering these programs. It is a core public finance and budgeting issue. Liz, you've been, uh, I think, like many, we've, we've talked, uh, I think you've been in the same boat with many of us in the public finance space where Medicaid is one of these issues that you deal with you know, kind of when you have to deal with it, but it is, especially in the situation that we're in now, uh, as important an issue as any in state and local public finance. When you reflect back on where we are, where we've been with, uh, with Medicaid, what comes to mind? Yeah, I am definitely one of those people who avoided writing about Medicaid because there was always a health policy person to to do that. And as you mentioned, the uh, way in which it's structured varies state by state. So it's it's difficult to take that high level national view of of what Medicaid is doing, although we, we do do that all the time with those those big numbers. But avoiding <laughs> avoiding reporting about Medicaid, or at least the the amount of money spent on it, really became rather unavoidable for for me in the mid 2010s when the Affordable Care Act really started uh, matriculating into into state budgets. Those places that had expanded Medicaid, I remember at one point, I think it was in like 2016 or 17, when a lot of states started seeing that switch off from education being the, the largest line item in their budgets to being Medicaid and healthcare. Um, and so, and that was in large part due to the ACA, particularly in expansion states, but also due to the rising costs of healthcare. Uh, we've been hearing for, for many years, the rising costs of healthcare, increasing costs far outpaces inflation. I imagine that's probably even true now, now that inflation is is relatively high compared to what it's been the last um, decade or so. But that's also just, so those two things, I mean, the rising cost of healthcare, expanding the availability of um, government-sponsored healthcare really has put this in the spotlight for a lot of places. And, and in some ways, I think that's that's a good thing, particularly when, when we're talking about the cost of healthcare, because it's nice to bring that down or at least to get it in line with inflation. And so there are other other policy actions or or things that 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 states and the federal government can do in that area. Yeah, like I said, it's uh it has become an unavoidable <laughs> unavoidable thing to consider and talk about and watch as a as a public finance writer. Yeah, for sure. We've talked a lot about the the state level implications, which obviously is the where all the action is because the policy is made at the state level and the federal money mm -hmm. flows to the states. But there's such an interesting local component to this as well. And you talk about that variation across the states, and you can have tremendous variation even within a state on where the Medicaid population resides in so many places. Uh, the you know, safety net hospitals, safety net clinics in in, in many communities are serving primarily a Medicaid population. And so if you see a, a, a small shift in Medicaid funding or Medicaid eligibility rules that trickles down to the local level, and we've, hear, we've been hearing a lot, as you were saying, 
as cost inflation has increased and healthcare cost inflation in particular, you have a lot of safety net healthcare providers in many communities that are on really thin margins to start. And when you, when you see cost increases or you see the potential for uh, a shrinkage of the Medicaid population they're serving or lower reimbursement rates from the state for certain kinds of things done within the Medicaid program, that plays out in a, in a very serious way at the local level. And to the point that you're hearing now stories of uh, many safety net hospitals and clinics saying, we're not sure that we're going to be able to continue to operate, or if we're going to operate, it's going to be with a much narrower suite of services. And then ultimately, if people aren't getting the health care that they need, they end up in emergency rooms, they end up getting that care in different ways that costs us all in, in other ways, right? So it's this really, really difficult question from a financing standpoint of spending the money, having a Medicaid program that's going to provide the kind of care that's that's needed in many populations, but then not being able to provide that care for lots of different fiscal or, or other kinds of policy reasons, and then shifting those costs someplace else makes for a really, really challenging environment and, and something, again, that as much as it's a, a health policy question, it's really a finance question at the core for so many of us. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Richard Oxer, who is a Senior Policy Associate at the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center, here to talk to us about Medicaid today. Richard, thanks for taking the time to join the Public Money Pod. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, Richard, thanks so much for coming. And we are here to talk about Medicaid and what's been going on with it lately with the, the federal partnership with states and the pandemic ending. But Let's first, because I can always use a brush up too on just how Medicaid financing works. I mean, it's not it's not something that is is like regular dinner conversation around most uh, most dinner tables, I'd say. So, can you start with like a quick overview of what that state federal partnership is and how it works? Yeah, Liz and Justin, I'm I'm so sorry to hear you don't find a way to get F maps into your uh, you know <laughs> your dinner conversations. Um, <laughs> The key thing to understand is that Medicaid is a jointly funded program between the federal governments and states. And that FMAP term stands for Federal Medical Assistance Percentage. Uh, to say that in English, it's how much of the tab is the federal government going to pick up for the states. And they have an equation that's largely based on per capita income. The idea being that wealthier states can pay a little bit more for their Medicaid recipients. States that have less resources should get a little more help. Um, and so that's why relatively high income states like Colorado and Connecticut, they get, you know, 50% of their Medicaid spending from the federal government, whereas a state like Alabama, West Virginia, the feds are paying upwards of 72, 74% of the share. That does not count Medicaid expansion, which is part of the Affordable Care Act, where the federal government is trying to incentivize states to do something. They do that by offering more money. So with Medicaid expansion, the deal was if you increase who is eligible for Medicaid, if you make more people, you know, upwards of 138 percent of the poverty line eligible for your Medicaid program, the federal government will cover at the time it was 100 percent. And now that's slowly phased down to roughly 90 percent of it. This is important because a lot of times you'll hear policymakers, specifically policymakers who will just say are not the biggest fans of Medicaid, 
um, you know, lament that, you know, you know, one out of every four dollars we spend goes to Medicaid and it's crowding out uh, other spending. The first part of that is true. Um, roughly 25 percent of state dollars goes out toward the Medicaid program. But as we just covered, those aren't all state dollars coming in and then going out. The federal government is picking up a large share of this. Yeah. And so any time the state is spending money on these programs, they would not be able to do it if it was not because of this considerable share. I think overall, all Medicaid is come something like 68% the feds are picking up. Um, and then as we get into what the feds can also do is change how much they're giving to either get you know specific policies enacted or policy outcomes they want to see. The Medicaid expansion population in states where, say, the federal government comes covers 50% baseline, the expansion population, does the Fed do the Fed still cover like 90% or do they cover that higher percentage for the expansion population? Yeah, the Medicaid expansion is for like basically anyone who like, if that's your ticket, like you get a mm -hmm. blue ticket. And so now we're going to pay 90 as opposed to if you came in with a yellow ticket, the original one, that's your FMAP. And so depending on who the population is and, and how they do it, it is probably more complicated than that. But I think for general understanding about policy works, it's just to keep that in mind that basically there, you know, because with, with Medicaid expansion, you know, the federal government is saying, we really wish you would do this more. So in fact, we're going to, we're going to even kick in more than we usually do. And so if you go along with that part, you get those dollars. Okay. So then what happened during the pandemic? Because as I understand, okay, there were two things. One, the FMAP changed, but then also there was something going on with Medicaid eligibility too. So can you talk about those two things? Yes. So the little known Families First Coronavirus Response Act. I forget if it was actually passed in February, March. As with a lot of things, it is hard to remember what and when <laughs> this stuff exactly happened. But this was before CARES. CARES was the big one. CARES was the response to, okay, the world is shut down. How are we going to get through this? This was, you know, when they were still trying to manage what they very, very much hoped was not going to be what it turned out to be. And what that bill did is, again, to use that FMAP thing, it said, if you go along with what we're asking you to do, we will bump that up by 6.2 percentage points. So if you were a 50% state like Connecticut, that goes up to 56.2. Um, if you were like a 74-ish percent state like West Virginia, we're now getting up to 80%. But Liz, as you noted, it, it was not just an inclusion. It was, it was we're, we're asking you to do this because we really don't want you to kick anyone off Medicaid. There's a couple of reasons why, why you know, and there's a reason why those work together really well. One is just in any type of economic crisis, increasing the federal government share of Medicaid is a pretty good idea. As Justin and Liz are probably familiar with, every time we have one of these bills, which is the American Rescue Plan or CARES or the Recovery Act, there's always this discussion of like, okay, well, we want to send money out to the states, but what are they going to do with it? Who's going to get this dollars? I'm sure you've had or are thinking about programs about how people are spending American Rescue dollars and who is that actually going to? Medicaid's simple. You just turn the knob, more money goes in to the states. And typically during any economic crisis, you're going to have an increase in unemployment, which means more people are going to need Medicaid. And so it's a win-win. And then it's an extra win during the middle of a public health emergency when you knew people were going to be needing medical services. Like if, if you read through it, like there's also stuff about providing for vaccination, providing for other, you know, related treatments of COVID. And so the idea was if you do us a favor and you just don't kick anyone off until this is over, we'll give you more dollars to support this program. 
So then, Richard, I suppose that takes us to where we are today. I think for a lot of us, we hadn't really heard the term redetermination prior to uh, about the last couple of months. Uh, tell us a little bit about what's happening there and what that has meant for states as they're you know, planning for what feels like a, a pretty significant change that's about to happen. Yeah. First, I think it's worth giving this program its you know due credit because there was this concern that we were going to have a spike in, uh, in you know, health insurance right as we're dealing with a global pandemic, but they fixed it. In fact, there are 4.5 fewer people without health insurance today than there was in the first quarter of 2020. It's gone down. In fact, the uninsurance rate is at 8%, which is a historic low. Um, and a big part of that is because now roughly 31% of the U.S. population is enrolled in Medicaid or CHIP, another acronym it's for basically for Medicaid for children. Um, but the public health crisis has been determined over in a legal sense because uh, of changes in federal legislation. And Justin, this gets to your point. So when that happens, that FMAP boost goes away. Or again, to say it in English, the extra federal dollars are no longer going to be there. And so that means states can wind down and again begin to remove people from their Medicaid roles, which sounds really mean, but Medicaid is a means-tested program. Different states have different evaluations of that, but that means there are eligibility rules. And so the states are again going to pursue their eligibility rules. And, and it, you know, we can get into this. It, it really eventually is going to become a policy choice because there is math and we're using percentages and percentage points. But, but what this is, is how quickly do you want to do this? How much effort do you want to put into maintaining those that are currently on your roles? Um, because people on your roles cost money and you're now going to have slightly less money from the federal government to provide them health insurance. So we think about the specifics of that, Richard. How many people are we talking about being taken off of Medicaid? What are some of the potential financial implications of that if you are a state, or in particular, if you're a, a, at the local level, say you're running a, a safety net hospital, or uh, someone you, know, you have, a, you're serving that population that may shrink um, potentially as a result of this. I'm sure it varies a lot state by state, but just qualitatively speaking, what sorts of numbers are we are we talking about here in terms of dollars and, and people? So, I think estimates have it. Um, I, I think 15 to 18 million people will no longer have Medicaid once we go through the drawdown. Now, that does not mean 15 to 18 million people do not have health insurance. Because again, for some of these people, the reason that they are no longer eligible for Medicaid is, you know, they got a job and they now get health insurance through their employer or their partner has a job and they can get health insurance through them. Or they possibly earn too much for Medicaid, but now they earn enough where they can benefit from the, the, the marketplace, the, the thing that was a, another part of the affordable health care plan where you can get assistance subsidies to get private insurance. Um, but there is and you know, estimates could be upwards of six million people who lose Medicaid, even though they are qualified for it in the state. And this, again, gets just again, this becomes a part of this is just one, again, part of this is just math and then trying to understand where people are. Part of this is just the challenges that all governments face trying to um, reach their constituents and reach the residents and provide services. Um, but there is an aspect of it that kind of 
reminds me a bit of Medicaid work requirements, where there is a political argument that Medicaid work requirements are, it's kind of like a, a value thing, like, well, you should, you should have to work to get this benefit. Um, and I'm just going to push all that to the side. Uh, what ends up happening when you do that is you lose people from your Medicaid rules because you've created obstacles for them to get on it. And the easier you make it to get on or the more obstacles you build, it's going to depend on your levels. And I think, Justin, to your question, this always has interesting and, and not easily summed up effects because, you know, if you if you lower the number of people you are providing Medicaid for, you lower the cost of the state to provide them health insurance. But people still need health care. So where do those people go? What hospitals do they go to? How is that hospital funded? Who has to pay when that person who lost insurance does not have it and shows up and needs care that the hospital will give them? Um, and so this has been an argument that I think people might echo things they've heard around the Medicaid expansion that we touched on. Because there was, again, central to that argument was someone could say this will increase the cost of the state. And that's true. But other people would say, yes, but by delivering health insurance by the state, you are ensuring that they have insurance, you are ensuring that hospitals get paid. And there's actually a lot of savings and net economic benefit that can be created by bringing them on. And so in the reverse happens, there's going to be some kind of attraction who ends up building the bill is a little hard to determine, but you know, you are you're in a lot of ways pushing it, not eliminating it. The terms unfunded mandate come to mind. I know state and local governments love to toss that one around, and and a lot of times it's true. It it seems like, although maybe not intentional, obviously that could be one of the side effects of when you uh, reduce the the Medicaid funding for no matter what reason, even if you're reducing it back to what it used to be. Um, what specifically then are states doing? I mean, how are they determining who's eligible, who isn't? If you're not eligible, do you just get a letter one day and say, sorry, you don't get health coverage anymore? I mean, how, how's all that working? Some states have been keeping tabs and kind of probably know some, some have not. Hmm. The federal government, when, when they, when they said we're ending the public health emergency, which means we're ending the FMAP bump, which means you can now release people from your roles. They said states are allowed to take upwards of 14 months, but they don't have to take all that time. I think it, there was, I, I don't have it off the top of my head, but basically they were like, you can't be like kicking them all off at once. Mm -hmm. if, if, you know, or, or again, like, again, because they can use policy levers on funding that like, if, if we see you just like dump a bunch of people, that's going to have negative effects on how you're getting funded. Um, so there is kind of like a baseline that all the states are going to meet because they're not going to want to lose that money. But some states like uh, Arkansas, Idaho, New Hampshire, South Dakota, they, they have pretty much signaled that they are going to be aggressive in reducing their roles. They will they will contact people. Like you said, sometimes it'll be a letter or there'll be text messages. Um, these states will probably do some of that, but they will not do much because Part of that is not wanting to spend, it costs money to do this. There are administrative costs. But again, another thing is the better you are at this, the more people you have on Medicaid, the more money you spend. Yeah. If your policy goal is to limit your Medicaid expenditures, you are not going to put that much time and effort into doing this. If your policy goal is to provide health insurance to the most amount of people possible, you know, yes, there are things, Center on Budget and Policy Priorities had like a three things of, you know, mail, text, emails, 
taking steps to simplify the renewal process. Um, and there are some federal funds available to increase the staff that is going to do this. Um, another thing just to always keep in mind, these programs are targeted at low income people, but the programs or, or in general, it is easier to deal with people who have a nine to five employed job and have tax withholding. It is easier to do if you are married with two kids instead of having two parents who are not married, having you know multiple children or different size households, um, and just all different safety sizes families come in. But like low income people are typically the most likely to change jobs often, to have multiple jobs, to have huge fluctuations in their income, and to have you know not that like simple two parents, children, one household, all on the same tax forms and Medicaid forms. And so all the reasons you want to assist these people is why it is challenging, especially if you don't put in the effort to find them and communicate with them. I want to branch out a little bit into just the overall fiscal situation for states as they are going through this process with Medicaid. And especially considering that, you know, in some places their their goal, as you said, it could be to to lower their Medicaid costs. And perhaps that could also be a factor when we're looking at the fact that state revenues being reduced, um, we've got rising inflation. I mean, all signs uh, are that we are headed for a slowdown. I, I feel like people have said that every few months in the last couple of years, but it might be real this time. <laughs> So, I, I'm not wrong. I'm just early. Is exactly. a lot of people. <laughs> but you know, all that to say, how does this factor into that kind of overall state fiscal picture? Yeah, and I think it's it's worth breaking these two apart because I think revenue unquestionably performed incredibly well for states. They had huge surpluses, and they had to make decisions based on that surpluses. But the thing I kept coming back to is that it was not the result of like a five year long you know, strong, slow march towards growth. It was the world is collapsing. Wait, no, it's not. Actually, things are okay. Um, one of the reasons a lot of states had a lot of money was because rich people did really well because the stock market was up a few years ago. Now it's back down. And so that's why states are getting nervous. It just wasn't, a, it was It was volatility. It was, it was hard for me not to use that word over and over and over and over again. And so when a lot of states passed tax cuts, um, being like a tax nerd who doesn't have to get elected to office, I would say, Maybe be cautious, maybe do like the one-time rebate checks, maybe, you know, think of small tax credits that you can provide your your your, your residents and citizens that'll provide big benefits to them, but won't have big costs in your budget because we don't really know where this is going. Again, because I'm a tax nerd who's not elected office, I, a lot of states didn't do this because they wanted to get elected and they wanted to enact their policy preferences because the policy preference of a lot of people is to reduce taxes and reduce government spending. Um, there are definitely some states and there are definitely some states that we mentioned that are doing a pretty quick wind down of the rolls like West Virginia, Idaho, uh, Ohio, Arkansas, that passed pretty big tax cuts. Like That's OK. That's a policy choice. That's their theory of the case. But it would mean that they would have somewhat more struggle. And I think this is it's kind of frustrating, but it's the only thing I can say. You know, the question when you cut taxes is like, well, why shouldn't you do this? And I have to say something like really lame. Like, well, we don't know what comes next and there could be hard choices in the future. And no one cares about that until we actually get to the hard choice. Like if you pass a big tax cut in 2021 or 2022, and there's a downturn in 2024 or 2025, and you react to it 
by rolling back your Medicaid eligibility or by, you know, cutting education because you can't roll back Medicaid eligibility or something like that. You know, that that was the thing that you kind of built in, but we can't see it until it happens. That's one part of this. And I, I do think that's where policymakers have control and really should be thinking of different scenarios and how they will react to them and how they want this to look if A, B, or C comes true. Then there's the federal side. And again, like I just want to note that what they did by increasing the amount of money they sent to state governments for Medicaid worked really well. It gave the states money, which meant that they didn't have other budget problems because they were having someone give them a helping hand on Medicaid spending. And they dramatically reduced the number of uninsured people in this country and people had health insurance. Um, I don't know, though, if that argument would win out if we had another downturn in the future, as there could be just for lack of a smart way to say this, you know, like spending fatigue or it could just the political control of the federal government would, would not, might not be inclined to do this again, especially considering that they just did this. Um, the thing that's challenging there is that if we have an economic downturn that really requires the federal government to step in and we're talking about whether they want to do it again, like, man, we got problems in all sorts of places and Medicaid is just but one example. Um, but they all add up and it is something where you could see it manifest or definitely not see the help that they had during the pandemic downturn. I mean, you bring up a, a really good point about the federal government increasing funding in times of crisis, particularly in an area where like, as long as I've been covering state and local governments, like Medicaid is like the first thing that shoots up in times of a downturn. And the fact that the federal government this time around was able to, with that extra funding, take pressure off of the states in that area and many others uh, is is the reason that a lot of people say that state budgets didn't suffer horrifically like they did in the last downturn during the Great Recession. It seems as if what the federal government did in the last several years has shown to work, but mm-hmm. I, I suppose there but there are obviously other factors at play. It's not just about doesn't work. Right, and this is so. I work at the Tax Policy Center. It's a non-advocacy organization, and I do not advocate for policy. Um, I'm merely here to help people understand and make their own choices. But like, yeah, it worked. And like, we should, the hope is that we would consider that the increasing in the federal government share helped. Um, now, like, full, like I, I think someone could come back and be like, well, the federal government spends too much money and now we're having all these other issues. And like, that's, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, if we're just narrowing the scope of this to what did it mean for the states, it was an unqualified success. It pumped money into these states that they weren't going to have. It allowed them to cover all sorts of people, which meant they didn't have obligations. Again, going back to Justin's question about who actually pays the bill when you turn this off, that the, the local governments and state were having to pick up. It did incredible things for rural hospitals because that's an area that's underserved unless the federal government is pumping in a bunch of money for that it helped people move jobs because they knew that they had a secure source of health care if they were getting it through medicaid and there's still 10 states that don't have it there's there were some really incredible quotes i think it was north carolina just approved it and a legislator who i'm only paraphrasing lightly is like said oh it turned out everything i said about in opposition to this was wrong but that's okay now so we'll do it you can get lost in the math and you can see what your state spends on Medicaid and that can cause you justifiable concern, but it's worth understanding the federal component of this and that the federal government is, is a partner that can really help states with their finances by taking care of a lot of this. And that does increase your overall level of spending. It does increase how much of your budget is going to healthcare. 
Um, but having them pick up this tab has just proved remarkably successful for state policymakers. Yeah, one question I had as we were talking about that, Richard, and we can, if you don't want to go here, just feel free to say so and we can edit out. I love when questions start like this. I'm dumb enough to answer. <laughs> Uh, well, we appreciate that, if, if nothing else. Uh, one, one question I had as we were going through that was, it, it seems like, at least from a public money standpoint, there's kind of a, a really blunt set of policy changes we can think about here. You're in, a, you're in a state that has not done Medicaid expansion on the one extreme, and then on the other extreme, it's dial up the FMAP rates and the federal government puts more money into the system with not too much in between, it seems like. If the goal was to try to improve that state-federal partnership, or if the goal was to try to provide care, provide access to populations that aren't necessarily getting it right now, or to make it a little more affordable for the states, I think everybody can probably agree on those, those as goals in some way, shape, or form that cut across a lot of different states. Are there any other kinds of reforms, policy or otherwise, that we can think about that are kind of in that in that space in between these really two extremes of do very little as a status quo or the federal government picks up more of the tab? So thankfully, I can't say anything too stupid because that's a hard question. We did a report a few years ago called Fiscal Capacity. And what this is actually trying to get at is, you know, how many economic resources does your state have to get taxes from? And how many needs does your state have to meet, which means you have to spend out? Colorado has both a good amount of like economic activity going on and because its population is relatively young and healthy, doesn't have like a lot of needs. So like it works out pretty well for Colorado. It's good to be a policymaker in Colorado. But then you have states like Mississippi and Alabama where there's just not a significant amount of economic activity where even if they had relatively high taxes, you just wouldn't bring in as much as like a California, New York or Maryland because there's just not enough rich people. And then you get to needs where you have these very large concentrations of low-income people that, again, even if they had just basic average spending programs, they would be sending out a lot of money. It makes it impossible for those states to use the economic resources they have to then put them into public services. But that's why we have the federal government, because the federal government can pull from the entire nation from the places where there are rich people. Uh, and it actually can do so in a pretty more like a more progressive just in terms of income tax taking higher shares from higher income people and then diverting those dollars. And so it's really hard to think of a program that would help these populations and specifically these low, relatively low income states that isn't a transfer program because the state can't do it on its own. Um, but I, I didn't choose those states at random. Mississippi and Alabama have not expanded Medicaid. That is a political choice that their political leaders have made. Um, but there is just, and they're not the only states, they're where you have, again, like I don't want to underplay this, but like just a, a, a ideological opposition to the idea of taking tax dollars from people and using them for public services. Um, but when you don't do that, you're left with very few options if you still are trying to achieve goals of, of providing healthcare or other services to your residents. Definitely. And it seems like deep skepticism toward the federal government mm -hmm. generally is also part of that. So the maybe it takes us back to the beginning of all this. We can say that, yes, it's set up as a partnership, but both sides have to believe in that partnership for it to work the way that it's intended to work. And this is something that I think your podcast might touch on as you go into other issues where when you, when you go to 
public policy school and you learn about American government, um, you learn simple things like about how, you know, in America, we have our, our levels of government. And the best thing you can do is not force one government to do everything, but to say, like, ah, what is the best government to collect the revenue? And then what is the best government to distribute and spend that money? And on something like Medicaid there or in numerous other programs, there really is value to having the federal government using its power and range to collect that money, but then not trying to actually be the provider of healthcare, but to go to these states or for other programs, other even localities and say, yeah, I think you're the one who should be doing this because you are going to know how to shape it. The, the, the federal government shouldn't be going, it probably is not best to go around and tell people who is eligible for Medicaid. It's too much work. It's, it's not going to, it's not going to work. The states are. But those states also got to make choices about what they actually want the policy outcome to be, whether that policy outcome is keeping a relatively large or relatively small share of its population on Medicaid. What would be a good uh, if research question to, to ask and then try to answer, and maybe you're doing this already, uh, regarding Medicaid and what's what's gone on with it the last couple of years? I do think there is a lot of good questions to be asked about the next year, again, just on our very tight topic of contacting residents, because uh, again, like we, we saw this with the child tax credit, you're, you're going to see this with any program aimed at low income people, especially when we're seeing some relative changes to these programs, especially those who want to increase it. How does this actually work? Like we've done research in the tax positive about how like Having trusted messengers is really important and having like, you know, nurses help with people's taxes, um, having people go to new mothers and explain that this is important to them. Kind of that, again, like basic blocking and tackling. Try your best and see if that worked. And if it didn't, find ways to improve it, because if the state then comes back and says, well, we want a paid leave program, we want a really expansive child tax credit that goes beyond what the federal government does, like you might need to think of things like this. And so anytime you keep those going, Hopefully, it can build on itself. We're gonna we're coming up kind of close to like having states had Medicaid expansion for a decade, and there just will be increasing amounts of data to show the positives and the negatives of of what it's meant. And I think the positives, given what we've seen so far, are going to greatly outweigh the negatives. But then, to make it more complicated, again, this factors into federal conversations. Um, and it's, 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 it's like a funny thing. Like sometimes it's like social security and Medicare are off the table, but then sometimes it's like social security, Medicare and Medicaid are off the table. Yeah. And is it because I think what you heard from a lot of people on, on Medicaid opponents is they would say things like, yeah, it's a good deal now, but they're going to change it. And I think Medicaid opponents were like, no, we would never change this. We like this. It's like, you might not be the ones making the decision. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if, John McCain had voted the other way and they'd ripped up the Affordable Care Act and not replaced it with something, we'd be having a very different conversation right now. It works until someone decides it shouldn't. Wow. Terrific. Well, Richard Oxer, thanks so much for taking the time to join us and uh, talk about all things Medicaid, state budgets, and all sorts of other related issues. Great insights, great information. We really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, Justin, Liz, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks again to Richard. That was a really informative conversation. And I, I appreciate um, the way it, he spoke about Medicaid and all the different facets of it um, and in, in a way that I could definitely picture and, and follow. Um, our rip from the headlines this week, of course, touches on Medicaid. 
and what's going on with it post-pandemic. There's a story in Stateline that came out by Christine Vestal, and the headline says, Millions of Kids Could Lose Health Coverage as States Purge Medicaid Rolls. So this is uh, this is a related to what we were talking about with Richard in terms of the, the requalification. And the story says experts warn that as many as 15 million Americans, including 7 million children, so almost half, could lose the health coverage that they relied on during the pandemic. They could be taken off the rolls for a few reasons, changes in their income, um, other qualifying factors, failure to respond to a renewal notice or state level paperwork glitches, which sounds just lovely. Um, and there's a quote from a professor at Georgetown from Georgetown University Center for Families. And she says, she, she says, I don't think people realize that 54% of the nation's children are covered by Medicaid. And under all of these, this, these shifting qualifications, uh, the story says about two thirds of these kids that are on uh, Medicaid now will remain eligible. But even so, a huge number of them are still going to be bumped from the rolls and their parents have to reapply. Uh, a few states have adopted policies to reduce unnecessary cancellations and promote co continuity of care. That would be Illinois, Colorado, Indiana, Massachusetts, New Mexico, North Carolina, Virginia, and Washington. Uh, but even so, and uh, the Kaiser Family Foundation report that's mentioned in the story also says that states will be most successful at ensuring Medicaid coverage for those who remain eligible if they take a full 12 to 14 months to complete the process, which makes sense. But as we know, as Richard mentioned earlier, there are a number of states that are um, doing this over a much, much shorter time frame. And so I think that says a lot about children and families in, in our country in general, that so many kids are in, in those low-income situations. Um, we all know that it's not written in stone that if you are born in a low-income family, there, there you will stay, but it certainly can be an indicator and much harder for kids who are born into low-income families to, to rise uh, to, for upward economic mobility. So that was one of the first things that stood out to me. Um, and the other thing that stood out to me was, uh, Justin, you mentioned this earlier on in, in the, the beginning of the episode, that that shift of costs. So um, a lot of physicians, it says in the story, are, are concerned that this lapse in coverage will lead to or people not continue doing getting their um, preventative care appointments and essentially just, you know, kids not going to the doctor when they should. And, and that, of course, can lead to increased costs later down the road if there's a problem that then becomes acute. It just uh, I brought the story up because it's frustrating to see, uh, and I wish there was some magic solution. I don't. I, the story doesn't mention one, so <laughs> uh, maybe there maybe there is one that's that's still waiting in the wings. But uh, you know, it's uh, it's something I just wanted to wanted to talk about, especially because over half of the the people who will be uh, who will see their he health coverage lapse are kids. And I think that's something that we really need to highlight. Um, what were some, what, I'm just curious, what were some of the things that uh, that stood out to you, Justin? Yeah, I think that's all well said, Liz, and, and I'm glad we have a chance to, to talk about this. Like I said, it's such a, a difficult issue at, at so many levels, including and especially from a kind of technical policy level, as Richard had alluded to, just being in, being in touch, being in contact with the, with the, affected child population is a challenge and and making sure that there's access to to care and access to benefits 
for populations that can be difficult to follow, difficult to track, which often involve children. It's just a, a really challenging issue top to bottom. I will say the, the, the thing that, that jumped out at me when we were talking, when, when I saw this and just now as we're discussing it is, it goes back to something that uh, Nevada treasurer Zach Conine talked about, how, uh, if you recall, when he was discussing baby bonds, mm. you know, he said a lot of their, the impetus for, for baby bonds, which again, for anyone unfamiliar is a, a, in effect, a deposit that the state makes in an account for newborn children. And then that deposit grows over time into a, a nice lump sum that you have when you become an adult to uh, go to school, to start a business, to, to do any number of different things with. And the, the he said specifically that a part of the motivation for baby bonds was that they had looked at a lot of data, particularly on the Medicaid eligible population, and saw that being a child on Medicaid was probably the single best predictor of being an adult on Medicaid. Mm -hmm. And one way to potentially break that sort of cycle was to provide uh, an extra financial boost when someone comes into adulthood so that they can maybe find themselves in a job that has benefits or find themselves in, uh, owning a home or owning property uh, or going to school to try to get a job that that pays better and has better benefits, all designed to uh, to sort of you know take take children and put them in a situation where they're not necessarily in that Medicaid population. Not if there's anything necessarily wrong with being in the Medicaid population, but I think most would agree that as a policy goal, if we can have uh, you know folks with coverage on their own, that's probably going to be better coverage for them. That's going to be a more efficient and effective way to spend public money, and therefore a, a goal that's worth attaining. So we're seeing state treasurers get involved in this kind of from a different angle, but it really speaks to exactly the point of this piece, which is that a huge chunk of the affected population is kids. And the question then becomes, as they go into adulthood, how do we put them in a situation to, to not be on Medicaid as kids? The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is brought to you in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual and the Government Finance Officers Association.